Have you ever felt like a failure? 2008 to 2009, our uh, conference was in a different denomination, and our conference was trying to uh, restart a church in Albany, Georgia, and they had reached out to the church where we attended and asked for the church's supervision in helping that church uh, be established once again and thrive. To that end, our pastor sent Gina Marie and I off to Albany to do this work with a little bit of money and a few people. And we initiated this work. We moved to Albany shortly after the work started. Uh, I kept my job in Tallahassee and commuted 92 miles one way every day from Albany into Tallahassee, so three hours a day in the car, uh, to and from Albany to Tallahassee during the week, and trying to restart this church on the weekends. And I remember one Sunday morning when we gathered for church, and no one was there except for Gina Marie. I'll never forget how I felt quitting the project. I'll never forget calling my conference superintendent, our family and friends. I'll never forget telling our pastor back in Tallahassee and the church that had sent us out, I felt like such a failure. I felt like I had failed everyone. I felt like I had failed my parents. I felt like I had failed my family, my church, my conference. I felt like I had failed that community. And last but certainly not least, I felt like I had failed God. And I felt like this failure defined me as a person. That I was just a failure. And that was just who I was as a person. And over the next 10 months, those were probably some of the 10 most difficult, darkest months of my life. I felt like a big failure to everyone and to God and that my life was defined by that failure. If there was ever a low point in Peter's life where Peter felt like a failure it would have to be here in John chapter 18 where he is denying being a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. The other Gospels tell us that Peter went out from here and that he wept bitterly about this. It's not by accident that he denies Jesus three times, uh, just as Jesus had foretold, and that when he sees Jesus again after this, uh, eating breakfast with Jesus, Jesus asks him three times if he loved Jesus. Was Jesus gracious reinstatement of Peter? And Peter learned what some of you sitting here have learned and what I have learned. And I hope all of you will remember, if you ever 
feel like a terrible failure in your life and in service to the Lord. I want you to remember this. Disciples who fail have a Savior who forgives. Disciples who fail have a Savior who forgives. And that's what Peter learned here through his failure. He failed Jesus big time, didn't he? But he had a faithful Savior who didn't fail to forgive Peter. Let's look at this passage together. And I want you to see here first, even the best disciples can fail to follow Jesus. I want you to see that here in this passage. Number one, even the best disciples can fail to follow Jesus. Jesus has been arrested. He's been taken from the garden. And He will now face trial by the Jews and then by the Romans. It's a mock trial. It's all been set up. Uh, uh, Jesus is, is already a condemned man. They are intent on putting Jesus to death, and they will do so by any means necessary. And Jesus knows this, and He has prepared His disciples in His farewell discourse that we've studied. He's prepared His disciples by praying for them. He's prepared His disciples by uh, uh, letting them know that this is going to happen, that He would be arrested, that He would be put to death, and that He would be resurrected. And so here, Peter and John probably follow Jesus in his arrest. We pick up the story in verse 15. Simon Peter followed Jesus. Jesus is bound. He's being taken by this band of soldiers. He's following Jesus. And it is likely John refers to himself that another disciple followed as well. So you get the picture. The other disciples have dispersed. The other disciples have departed. Two disciples are following Jesus as he's carried away by his arresters. It's Simon Peter, and it is the other disciple, likely the author of this gospel. John, let's just consider that it's John here for a moment. I'll refer to him as John. John arrives to Annas' house where Jesus is taken for the first portion of his Jewish trial. And John is granted access. He enters with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest, John tells us. He is able to go in. However, Peter apparently arrives at a different time. He is following, as the other gospel writers will tell us, from afar. He's not following closely along with Jesus as he's being carried away. So he arrives at a later time, and they won't let him in. So John is apparently known by the household of Annas, the former high priest, and he gains access for Peter into the house. Goes to the gate, and Peter is able to go in. And there is apparently a servant girl who is keeping watch at this gate. And it is late at night. It's, it's moving into the later hours of the day. And we can presume that it's, it's dark outside. And you can imagine all the commotion that's happening as, as Roman soldiers and temple police are carrying Jesus to this 
uh, very affluent figure in Jerusalem, Annas, the former high priest and father-in-law of Caiaphas, Caiaphas, the current high priest. And so you can just imagine, all, uh, the household is all assembled, right? All the, the lights are on, everybody is awake and out of bed, you might say. And so here, Peter, as he gains access to the house through his fellow disciple, the other disciple, who is likely John, he is asked by the servant girl if Peter is numbered along with the other disciples. So apparently, John had let her know upon his entrance that he was a disciple of Jesus. And so the servant girl presumes Peter is one of the disciples too. And how does Peter respond? Look at verse 17. What does he say? I am not. Jesus, through the Gospel of John, has revealed himself as the great I am. From Exodus chapter 3. I am the good shepherd. I am the gate. I am the true vine. And here Peter, by contrast to Jesus, reveals himself as the great I am not. Peter is asked, are you one of Jesus' disciples? By a little servant girl. Peter answers, I am not. And Peter joins himself away from the commotion with those who have awakened themselves and have started a fire and are warming themselves by the fire. There is Peter with them. John cuts from the scene there and moves to the scene of the interrogation of Jesus. We'll look at that here in a moment. And then the camera pans back to Peter outside by the fire, warming himself. And we see the interrogation of Peter continue. Who was there with him? Were, was it the temple police? Likely. Roman soldiers? Perhaps. Servants in the household? Probably. Peter is standing there with them, separate and apart from Jesus and from John, his fellow disciple. And Peter begins to be interrogated again. Look at verse 25. You also are not one of his disciples, are you? Peter becomes the great I am not yet again. He denied it, John tells us, and said, what? I am not. And then again, he's asked by one of the servants of the high priest, isn't it interesting here, this is one of Malchus's relatives. Now who's Malchus? Well, Malchus was the poor guy back at the garden that Peter had just tried to lop his head off and got his ear by mistake. And Jesus had reached out and touched and healed Malchus's ear. This relative begins to identify this guy as one of those who were in the garden who looked strangely like the man who just tried to chop the head off of his, his kinsman. And so he asked him, did I not see you in the garden with him? Verse 26. Didn't I, didn't I see you? you? You look strangely familiar to a guy who wielded a sword very quickly and tried to kill my relative. Peter again denies it. And just as Jesus had foretold, the rooster crowed. 
Why did Peter deny Jesus these, these three times? Let me offer you uh, three explanations for why I think Peter denied Jesus three times. Hold these with an open hand. But just trying to read the story carefully, here's why I think Peter denied Jesus. Number one, I think Peter denied Jesus to avoid association with Jesus. We see this in verses 15 through 18, right? Jesus has been taken into Annas' house. Another disciple has gone, apparently has identified himself with Jesus as one of his disciples. And Peter doesn't want to be associated with with Jesus in all of what is about to happen. He doesn't want to be caught up in the middle of all of that. Secondly, he denies Jesus to avoid witnessing on Jesus' behalf. As we'll see here shortly, during uh, an interrogation, the suspect is not supposed to be questioned in a trial, in a Jewish trial. They are supposed to bring witnesses, and witnesses are supposed to be tried. They're supposed to be questioned to provide evidence against the accused. And so here are these individuals knowing that this interrogation of Jesus is happening inside the house, as you will, and Peter denies knowing Jesus to avoid being called as a witness in the trial, it would appear. And lastly, it would appear that Peter denies Jesus to conceal the exposure of his sin. Let us not forget, and this is clear in the text, he just tried to murder a guy back in the garden. And this is the relative of the man whose ear he had just cut off. He's the one who asked Peter, didn't I see you in the garden? And Peter denies it. What led to Peter's failure here? Failed miserably in representing Christ. What led to Peter's failure? Fellow PCA pastor up in Greenville, uh, Dr. Rick Phillips, he notes three reasons that led to Peter's failure. Number one, failure to know himself. Peter was overconfident about his ability to remain a faithful witness for Jesus. Just consider what some of the Gospels report for us. Uh, in John 13, 38, Peter confesses, I will lay down my life for you. He tells Jesus, promising him. Well, apparently not. Mark 14, 29, Peter boasts, even though all fall away, Jesus, I will follow you. I won't Fall away, he promises Jesus. Mark 14, 31, he says emphatically, if I must die with you, Jesus, I will not deny you. Peter failed to know himself. He was overconfident in his ability, his own ability to follow Jesus rightly. He was overconfident in his ability to withstand persecution. And because of his overconfidence, related to the second reason, we see Peter fails to pray. Matthew records for us, Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane. He is there at night. He is praying. He takes 
uh, Peter, James, and John with him, and they, they go off separately to pray. And what does Peter do? Peter falls asleep. Jesus comes to him and tells him, watch and pray. Can't, can't you just even pray for an hour, Peter? Peter failed to pray. And number three, he failed to follow Jesus closely. Not only do we see an indication of that here in John 18 where he is arriving separate and apart from Jesus to Annas' house, the other Gospel writers indicate for us that he followed from a distance. And rather than being present with Jesus during Jesus' interrogation, where is he? He's outside with those who are likely the, ones, the very ones who had arrested Jesus outside of the house. You know, we never think that we would fail Jesus, at least not in a big way, like Peter. But the same thing that the same the same things that led to Peter's failure can lead to our failure as well. We need to take seriously our weakness. We ought not to be prideful. We ought to rightly confess our dependence upon the Lord Jesus Christ and our need for His grace because we too can fall into sin and fail to follow Jesus rightly and deny Him in a moment of weakness that we think would never happen to us. We too can fail to pray as we ought to, uh, boasting about our ability to follow Jesus and not seeing our own need to depend daily on the Lord in prayer. And as a result, we too, like Peter, in a symbolic sense, can fail to follow Jesus closely as we should. Even the best disciples can fail to follow Jesus. It can happen to you. It can happen to me. But even if the best disciples fail to follow Jesus, you need to know that disciples who fail, they have a Savior who forgives. And that's what we see here with Peter. Even though he had failed, and he had failed miserably, he had a Savior who would not fail to forgive him. While Peter is failing his interrogation, Jesus is before Annas, the high priest, succeeding in his interrogation. Let's look together. Beginning in verse 19. The high priest then enters into a period of questioning Jesus. Now remember, there are virtually two high priests. There's Caiaphas, the son-in-law of Annas. He's the high priest who has been established and put in place by the Romans. And then there is Annas, the former high priest, who had four sons who held the office under the direction of the Romans, but he's the real power player here. All right? Uh, if you follow the money trail, it leads back to Annas. Okay? He's the guy who's pulling the strings. And isn't it interesting that they take Jesus, not to Caiaphas first, they take Jesus to Annas, and here John calls him what in verse 19? He calls him the high priest. And when the servant reaches out and strikes Jesus for his answer, what does he condemn him for? He says essentially, that's no way to talk to who? That's no way to talk to the high priest. And so obviously Annas, even though he's not holding the official position, he's really the guy. All right, He's the real one with all the authority and all the power. 
He's the most affluent religious leader in all Jerusalem. And he begins to, inque- begins to question Jesus about two things. Number one, look at verse 19. He wants to know how successful Jesus has been. Who are your disciples, Jesus? How many disciples have you gathered? Who has decided to follow you? Have you decided to stage a riot in Jerusalem and to overrun and to overthrow the temple and to remove the Sanhedrin from their office and establish yourself as the superior one guiding and directing the temple? Have you put followers in place that in the occasion of your arrest they would stage a riot in Jerusalem and, and threaten the safety of everyone? How many people have decided to follow you, Jesus? And so here Annas, seeking to preserve his power, is interrogating Jesus about his disciples. And he begins to interrogate Jesus about his teaching. What have you taught them? What have you said? How do you understand the Scriptures? How do you understand the prophets? How do you understand the Mishnah? How do you understand the responsibility at the temple? He is interrogating Jesus. And notice how Jesus answers. Or rather, notice how Jesus doesn't answer. He only answers one of two questions from Annas. He doesn't answer about His disciples, only about His teaching. Verse 20, Jesus answers him, I've spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. What Jesus is saying here is, my teaching is not secretive in any way, shape, or form. The very things that I've said with my disciples in private, I have also said openly to everyone. There is not a secret coup that is being staged here, is what Jesus is saying. Anyone has had access to my teachings, not only in the synagogues, but also in the temple. And Jesus is saying here, He has not attempted to conceal or hide a single thing. And then Jesus begins to turn the tables on Annas in verse 21. Why do you ask me? Isn't that interesting? Who thought He should be asking the questions? Annas should be the one who's asking the questions. And Jesus turns the tables on Annas and says, why do you ask me? Go ask those who've heard what I've said to them. They know what I've said. Jesus answers him. What Jesus is pointing out is it was categorically wrong and improper for Annas to be questioning Jesus in this way. If there were charges against Jesus if it was regarding something he had said or something he had planned, they were to present witnesses who could testify against Jesus and Annas should be directing all their questions against him, against them. And so what Jesus is saying here is, where are the witnesses? Why are you asking me? Go find some witnesses to substantiate your accusations against me. And this is the moment when the servant of the high priest strikes Jesus. And Jesus answers, verse 23, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Not only was it wrong for Annas to be questioning Jesus like this, it was wrong for the servant to strike Jesus for his response. Annas then sends Jesus to 
Caiaphas. And the reason that he does this is that if they are going to recommend a death sentence for Jesus, it has to come from the current high priest. And so he sends Jesus to Caiaphas that the predetermined decision can be carried out as the death sentence for Jesus. Isn't it interesting the contrast when you think about this? There were two people interrogated on that day. Jesus succeeds in His interrogation and Peter fails miserably. And even while Peter is failing to defend Jesus, even while he is failing to testify and be a witness for Jesus, Jesus is guarding Peter at that very moment. Jesus could have easily have said, well look, if you want to know what I've taught, John's standing right here. You can ask him. And Peter, who's outside right now, getting warm by the fire, bring that guy in here. Have him testify about what I said. But no, Jesus doesn't do that. Peter was being guarded by Jesus even when Peter didn't know it. And Jesus guards us too in our moments of weakness and failure. Like Peter, Jesus knows we're weak against Satan, doesn't He? What did Jesus tell Peter? Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Peter was overconfident about his own ability to follow Jesus, but Jesus was realistic about it. And He tells Peter, you're, you're going to fall, Peter. You think you are so able to follow me, Satan desires to ruin you, Peter. So Jesus knew that Peter was weak. And because of that, He didn't fail to pray for Peter, did He? And He doesn't, pray, doesn't fail to pray for us. Remember what Jesus told Peter? I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Think about what Jesus said in John 17 in the high priestly prayer. While I was with them, I kept them in your name which you gave me. I've guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except for the son of destruction. And so here is Jesus, even though Peter has failed to pray, and even though we fail to pray, we have a Savior who doesn't fail to pray for us. He knows we're weak. And, like He did for Peter, Jesus doesn't fail to abide with us. Peter failed to follow Jesus closely. He tried to follow from a distance, rather unsuccessfully. But Jesus abides with us, doesn't He? How does He do that? He does so by His Spirit. He tells His disciples in the book of Acts, that He would abide with them by His Spirit, that He would empower them by His Spirit and enable them to be witnesses. And who was it that preached the sermon on the day of Pentecost? It was the very guy who failed miserably to be an effective witness for Jesus. Now we have to pause here and consider what appears to be an inconsistency. If Jesus did all that for Peter, why did he still fail? Because he failed, didn't he? Did he fail? Did he sin? Did he deny Christ? Oh yeah. Big time. But he wasn't lost. 
Just as Jesus had said in John 17 that He had guarded those the Father had given them, not one would be lost. Here is Peter in this moment. Even though he's failed, he's not lost. And he'll soon be forgiven. Why? Disciples who fail have a Savior who forgives. Even the best disciples can fail. Jesus protects His disciples who fail. And what happens to them? Well, failed disciples become forgiven disciples because of an unfailing Savior. Jesus was unjustly interrogated for Peter. He subjected Himself to being falsely accused. He subjected Himself to being falsely condemned. He subjected Himself to horrendous punishment. He subjected Himself to the cross. He subjected Himself to death and remaining under the power of death for a time. Why would He do all of that? Because He would not fail one iota in the work that the Father had given Him. He would do so, the only truly innocent man to ever be put to death, He would do so because He's an unfailing Savior who forgives failed disciples. Jesus, you see, was Peter's legal representative. He was he was Peter's attorney. You say, well, what do you mean? Well, he represented Peter. Who do, you, who do you represent Peter to? He represented Peter to the Father. Even though Peter had failed, Christ came and represented Peter, all his failures, all his sins. He represented Peter and he took upon himself every single punishment that Peter deserved for every single sin, even those that are not mentioned here, including denying his association with Jesus. And can I tell you something, friend? If we're in Christ, Jesus has done the same thing for you and for me. He has gone before the Father representing you. He has bore upon Himself all the punishment that you and I deserve for our sin. And we deserve sin. Or we deserve punishment for sin. Jesus has come and He has represented you and me. He has taken upon Himself the punishment, and by His mercy and grace, we are set free. I tell my kids, this isn't real fancy theological language, but it's useful. I tell my kids that grace is when we do receive what we don't deserve. Peter received forgiveness that day, and can I tell you, he didn't deserve it. And if you and I are in Christ, we have received forgiveness for our sins. And can I tell you something? We don't deserve it. Mercy is when we don't receive what we do deserve. Peter deserved to be the one interrogated on that day. Peter deserved to be the one who went to the cross to pay the punishment for sin. And you and I, we deserve to be punished for our sin. We would rightly be condemned by God and eternally separated from Him. But because of God's mercy, we don't receive what we do deserve. We receive a pardon and we don't receive God's judgment. Why? Because we had a legal representative 
who stood in our place and our sins have been forgiven. And I wonder if this morning, if you truly have faith in that. I wonder if this morning, if you say, look, I have failed in big ways, Pastor. There are sins in my life that are shameful. There are events in my life that, that I, I, there's, there's no way that I could rightly be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. I struggle with it, Pastor. I, I hear you preach forgiveness and grace and mercy in the Gospel, and, and it's, it's good news to my mind and to my ears, but it's hard for me to grasp on that good news from my heart and believe that that's not just true, but that it's true for me. And can I tell you something, dear friend? Perfect faith is not a requisite for salvation. You don't have to have a perfect assurance in order to have a perfect Savior. Why? This is what the Lord does. Disciples who fail have a Savior who forgives. And He hasn't failed them. Not for a moment. And His promises for you and for me to persevere in this life, they won't fail either. And you can take that to the bank. Let's pray.